Hey, my name is Jason. I'm the producer of It Starts With Attraction. I wanted to let you know that we have a brand new website solely dedicated to working on your pies. Introducing ItStartsWithAttraction.com. You can listen to every episode, learn about the pies, and sign up for our weekly newsletter. Go to ItStartsWithAttraction.com. It starts with attraction, one word. It starts with attraction.com to get signed up today. For several years, I have had a love hate relationship with social media. And part of it is because I know from a psychological standpoint how harming it can be. And I also know from just a relational standpoint how harming it can be in the same way. In fact, about three, four, maybe even five years ago now, my husband, Rob, gave up his smartphone because he realized he was spending way too much time on it. He realized that at the end of the day, when I would come home from work and we would sit down on the couch together, that most of the time he had just been scrolling his phone most of the day and most of the evening as well. It was hurting our relationship. So he made the decision to get rid of it. He also made the decision to get rid of it because of the kinds of things that it was easy for him to get access to on social media, like inappropriate pictures. And he just didn't want that in his life. So I'm so proud of him. He got rid of his smartphone. He has a flip phone and it breaks every couple of years. He has to get a new one. But you know what? He loves life without having a smartphone. He got rid of his Facebook, Instagram, and he is not missing out on anything. Many times I have wondered myself, what would it be like to just get rid of it, to not feel like there's something I need to check or post to and not have that drive to want to feel like some of my self-worth is tied to the feedback that I get on these things. So I've taken a lot of breaks. I've gotten back on social media. I'm trying to find that good balance of what is it that I can add to this community, to this social community, but also in what way is it most healthy for me to receive from it as well? I don't know that I found the answer, but I'm closer after this conversation that I had with my guest today. His name is Chris Martin. He was over social media at LifeWay, which is a large Christian organization. Many would argue the largest resource Christian organization in the world. They have tons of authors and books and materials that they supply to churches everywhere. He managed at one point, I believe he said 270 social media accounts. And it had become his life. He had to react to things quickly, even if it was late at night when he was trying to spend time with his family. And it really stemmed his interest and his desire to lean in and understand what is social media doing to us? What is the benefit of social media and how can we get it to work for us instead of possibly working against us? And so in this conversation, it is so amazing. Listen to the entire thing. There's definitely going to be a takeaway that you have from it. I know there were many that I had from it. And also be sure at the end of this that you go and check out Chris's new book called Terms of Service, which you can find anywhere that you get books. Let's dive into today's conversation with Chris Martin. There's a process to falling in love and it starts with attraction. Join Kimberly Beam Holmes and her special guests as they discuss how to become the most attractive you can be, physically, intellectually, emotionally, and spiritually, or as we refer to it, working on your pies. We'll teach you how to have better relationships and become more attractive to others, and maybe more importantly, to yourself. It starts with attraction, and it starts now. 
Yes, I am very excited to talk to you today about your new book that you have, but also about the experience that you've had. We were chatting just before this, so our listeners know you've had quite an experience with social media, just professionally and had a lot of interaction with the craziness of it. But then you also have a new book that you have out, Terms of Service. And so we're going to be talking about it today. And I love the the tagline, the real cost of social media. Mm, this is a topic I am, I have a lot of feels about. Good, good. I, I do too, uh, believe it or not. So many that I wrote a 224 page book about it. How long did it take you? <laughs> um, so let's see. I started writing it in June of 20. Um, and we had a newborn at the time, but it was also the pandemic, which is kind of a blessing because we had like no social obligations. Right. Um, and, and newborns are much easier than toddlers in a lot of what, when it comes to writing books, uh, because newborns kind of chill and toddlers yeah. are everywhere. So I just finished the draft, the first draft of a next book. That one was a little bit harder because there's a lot more going on these days. Um, but this one took from like June of 20. And I didn't turn it in until the due date of November 1st of 20. But I was done with writing by like August and Good just like you. passed it. Yeah, I, I, I got to work fast uh, because yeah. if if I let it go, I let it. I'm going to let something like that go and not really get back to it. So I took yeah. like two or three months to write it and then um, passed it around to a bunch of folks to get their input and then made some substantive edits before I turned it in. So and that was about the same with this one. I got. This next one, which I know we're not talking about, but I started in August and finished. I just finished last week. So and then I'm going to pass it around to get some feedback before I turn it in. So, yeah, it's I've learned I've learned that it's best if anyone who likes to ride or whatever out there. It I've learned for me and everybody's different. It's best to just like crank it out and mm-hmm. not edit yourself, not worry about that. And then just come back later and fix it all up and be like, what was I thinking? That sounds really silly or, or whatever, rather than try to make it perfect on the first pass because you'll never finish if you try to do that. No. Yeah, I would be. I would totally be that way. Okay, so your Terms of Service book, what led you to want to even write a book about social media? So I have worked in social media my whole career. Um I, I'm just 31, so I, I only started working in the real world in 2013. Um, but I grew up in a home that was kind of inundated with technology. So my dad worked for IBM uh, virtually my whole young life. Um, he started in 1982 or so and and worked there until I was a senior in high school. So we had – my and, and what's funny is he was working from home a good bit of that time. Um, so like I, I experienced my dad working from home long before it was cool. Uh, and, uh, the, a local newspaper in 1993 did a story like Joe Martin works from home. He's one of a million Americans who have a second phone line in their house. His son, Christopher can sit on his lap while he takes phone calls. Um, and, uh, so yeah, it was really funny, but so like, so we had, uh, we had a windows 95 machine, like in 1995 and we're like, I was hanging out on the internet before most of my friends at school in first grade had the internet. Wow. Um, and so, yeah, so I've always been just interested in this stuff and never like super tech. Like I was never taking computers apart and putting them back together or anything like that. But I was always very interested in, in the social part of the internet, which like, that's really what makes it kind of magical and, and terrible in some ways. And so I've always loved it. I wrote a blog when I was in high school and was super active on MySpace and then Facebook when it came to high school. And then 
Um, in college, I started working for a marketing company, even though I was getting a degree in Bible, but I had a lot of experience running social media and, and writing on the internet. So I started working for a marketing company while I was a college student running some social media accounts for some obscure companies and then uh, started at Lifeway right out of college. And basically for seven years while I was there, worked in a variety of social media related roles with my final one before I left being kind of head of social at Lifeway. And so that was a lot of work at a very tumultuous time, both in the life of the organization and in, in the world. Um, so I was like, you know, well, it was around that time I, I decided you know, I want to do something not so social media related, which is why I'm I'm at Moody Publishers now doing a little bit more offline work, I suppose you could say. But it was around 2017, 2018, toward the end of my time at Lifeway, when I first started to ask questions like, and what is what is social media doing to us? Like I was spending mm-hmm. my days, you know, 40 hours, 50 hours a week trying to figure out how to best like doing content strategy. That's the best mm-hmm. way to describe it. Like figuring out like how do we use social media to serve people with with the good news and with helpful Christian resources. I worked for a Christian the, the largest Christian resource company in the world, arguably. Yeah. And and it was kind of like, how do we, you know, people buy our print stuff all the time. How can we use the internet best to serve people online? Mm-hmm. And that's what my days revolved around, which was super fun. And I still get to do a little bit of that even today. But while I was doing all that strategy talk, I also started asking like, but is this all good? Like, where is this? Is it even neutral? How is this mm-hmm. affecting us? And how is this changing more than even just the media that lives on these platforms? I started asking like, what's this technology that lives under the media, the algorithms. And like, what are these things? How are they reshaping how we think? How are they reshaping how we view the world? Um, And so it was around that time a friend recommended to me Amusing Ourselves to Death by Neil Postman, which is a book that was written in 1985 by Neil Postman, who's a professor of media ecology, which is just a fascinating discipline at um, at NYU. And it's Hmm. his most famous book. He's written a handful of books, but um, it really focuses on like the revolution of the television and how the television was changing uh, entertainment habits. And really the whole, the title of the book is apt uh, w- how he talked about how we were amusing ourselves to death back in the 1980s. Like um, he talks a lot about how everybody was afraid of George Orwell's 1984 big brother, the government's going to mm-hmm. come into your house and, and like put cameras in your house and make you watch TV. And like, you're going to be forced into this sort of surveillance state. And he said, Frankly, I think Aldous Huxley's vision of the future in Brave New World, which is another dystopian novel released around the same time as 1984, he said, I think Huxley's novel is more apt that um, in Brave New World, what people loved, what people consumed and what they embraced is what was ultimately their demise. Mm. Whereas in in 1984, it was like this outside force impinging upon you and, and like restricting your freedom. And he was like, honestly, I think our our willing embrace of new technology is actually going to undermine us more than this sort of, um, you know, malicious force coming in from the outside. And man, when I was reading Amusing Ourselves, I was like, this book was written in 1985 and it could not be more relevant for 2017 back when I was first reading it. And so um, I started thinking like what Neil Postman's not around today. He, he died in the early two thousands and he, he wasn't a Christian, but he like was sympathetic toward, Christian ideas and, and spoke to Christian groups and, and really faith groups pretty regularly, despite kind of being a secular Jewish man himself. And so I was like, what if, like, what would happen? What would it be like if Neil Postman were around today mm. and he was addressing social media 
and he was doing so from a Christian perspective. I was like, I'd really love to read somebody who was doing that kind of thing. Mm. And I was frankly having a hard time finding anybody doing – I've since learned of a handful of people who are doing that sort of thing. But back in 2017, 2018, I didn't know anyone kind of writing about internet culture from a Christian perspective. And so I was like, well, I'll do it because it's super interesting to me and I've really bathed in this space. And so I started writing at a few different outlets about kind of internet culture and the social internet, social media from a Christian perspective, and then launched my own newsletter around the end of 2019, beginning of 2020 in that vein. And out of that, decided to to pursue a book project on it. And that, that's kind of the roundabout way of how this came to be the long story, I suppose. Fascinating. So fascinating. So I'm looking at the table of contents in your book, and I just love how it's laid out. So there's three parts, how we got here, the five ways the social internet shapes us, and where do we go from here? So how did the social internet evolve, and how do you think it affects our lives? Oh, man. Um Read the book. We have. Uh, yeah. uh, this is a podcast series, right? We're here for about three hours. Um, so uh, how did the social internet evolve? Well, that That's the first chapter of the book. And it's funny because it was the hardest chapter to write mm-hmm. because it required a lot of research. So I thought, you know, I was like, if I'm writing a book about social media, the social internet, and if you want, I, I use those terms sort of inter- interchangeably, but they're, they're different. And, and we can talk about that if you want. But how did the social internet evolve is a, an important question because I don't want to assume that all of us know how we got here, right? Because anyone picking up this book or even listening to this podcast may be 20 or 35 or 55 or 65. And for some of us, the internet didn't really come around until we were adults and had children. But for some of us, like me, I was logging on to Nickelodeon.com when I was in first grade to see what the website of my favorite TV channel looked like, you know, like, wow, Nickelodeon has a website. What, what must that be like? Um, and so like I was doing that when I was in first grade. And so mm. everybody has a different experience. So I wanted, I was like, man, if I'm going to write a book about how this, all this stuff shaping us, I feel like I should get us on some shared ground of like understanding the history of how we got here. And so the first chapter was required a lot of research uh, because I experienced it. Like I was a kid in the nineties and I remember getting 15 AOL trial discs to my house that we never were allowed to use because IBM had their own internet service. And (laughs) my dad was like, we get that for free. I'm not paying 30 bucks a month for AOL or whatever it costs. So I I never got to have AOL myself, but, um, but I always remember getting those trial discs and Mm -hmm. I remember logging onto MySpace for the first time and what that experience, like what I remember what it was like to have MySpace as a middle schooler, which like was precarious, but also like a lifeline to friends at the same time, like yeah. after school. And um, so anyway, I, I the first chapter is really, yeah, how did the social Internet evolve? How did we get here? And and I've been told it's funny. I, I've gotten more good feedback about that chapter than any other chat. I was like, is anybody going to think this is interesting? Like, it's really interesting to me to think about. And, and read about how MySpace tried to buy Facebook for billion or billions of dollars or millions of dollars. And then, and then Facebook said, uh, no, sorry, we're not going to, we're not going to do that. It's, and in fact, we're going to 10 X the price for you to buy us. It's, it's interesting to read up and, and think about that kind of stuff. But, um, but I didn't know if anybody else would like it. So a lot of people seem to like reading history of, of the internet and, and that's what that's all about. But how does it affect us, man? Um, in so many ways, I think it, it makes us addicted to attention. Um, it really on on the social internet 
attention becomes kind of our barometer of worth, if you will. Like we start to assign value to ourselves or to other people based on how much attention we get. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it changes us. It makes us willing to give up really, really intimate details about ourselves that we would like if you told parents 15 years ago that it would be totally normal to post pictures of your children on the internet, they would have told you you were crazy. Mm. Um, but yeah. today, like my, my wife and I have decided we're not posting pictures of our daughter on the internet for a while until she's older. And people have kind of felt like that we're weird for doing that. Mm. And it's like, man, it really hasn't been that long that that swung from you're weird. If you do this to you're weird, if you don't do this, mm. um, and so that kind of thing, I think it, I think it makes us want to pursue affirmation instead of truth. Like we want to have our backs scratched more than we want to be told what the truth is. And I think, mm-hmm. I think that can be a problem. I think we've seen that a lot in sort of misinformation and, and how we're so easily led astray by things that we agree with, but may not be true. Hmm. Uh, and I think it leads us, to, I think it leads us to try to destroy people we don't like, like people who just act objectionably, like people who say things that we think are mean or even inappropriate. And they may be mean and inappropriate. I'm not saying that they're not, but I do think that we've kind of taken this, call it cancel culture or whatever you want. People have different names for it, but I think we've kind of taken this mantle upon ourselves to police the conduct of other people. And and that I am very concerned about how mob mentalities are so prevalent on the internet. And I, and I think it's such an interesting phenomenon and frankly, a scary one. And I think we just need to, maybe a bit more gracious with people, but those are, those are a few ways. I think it, it shapes us. And, and I get into a lot of that in the, in the book, but, um, but really like the thrust of the book is, you know, some folks, when I have conversations like this, it's like, well, so you hate social media. Then. Like you just think it's all bad. No, 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 no. I work in social media. I have my entire career and it's burned me pretty bad personally and professionally. Like it's really been a source of stress in my life. However, I don't think it's all bad. And I don't think you fix the problems of the social internet by just logging off or deleting your accounts. Now, I do think that can be a helpful step for folks to take if they have, if they're recognizing really having an unhealthy relationship with these platforms. But I I think if we have this idea that, oh, if we just boycott Facebook or delete our accounts, that it'll all just go away. I just think that's foolish. And I don't, I, I think there's good on there. I just kind of the main point of the book and and all of my writing, whether in the book or a newsletter or otherwise, is not stop using this stuff. It's bad so much as, hey, let's use this stuff more critically. Let's use this stuff with like our critical thinking hats on, not just passively in every free five minutes we have in our day. Like Mm -hmm. we should be asking a question like, what problem does Instagram solve in my life? Like, what is Facebook doing for me more than what I'm, what am I doing for Facebook? Because I think one of the biggest problems is these platforms were ostensibly pitched to us as tools to help our lives be better. Mm. And I really think we've come to serve these platforms more than these platforms serve us. And, and that's kind of the heart of what I'm not trying to get everybody to log off as healthy as that may be. Um, I think there is good thing, good redemptive stuff there. I think the the goal would be like, let's just think more clearly and ask harder questions of these platforms as we use them. I have so many questions. So let's go. Let's go. So just for so just for that one, let's start with what you just said, and then I need to go backwards to a couple of things. But what do you think social media 
does for us? Like what should it be that it gives to our lives? What, so the way you just said it, remind me of how you worded it. What is Facebook doing for me instead of what I'm doing for Facebook? Is that how you said it? Yeah. Yeah. What should Facebook be doing for us? I I think, uh, well, I have my own qualms with Facebook. Like I, I think some of it's actually like some of the goals of Facebook aren't inherently things that we should pursue. Like, I don't know that we should be connected with everybody across the world. Like, I just don't know if that's a positive thing. I think we've seen a lot of negative effects of that. Um, but I think what should these platforms, let's just talk about social media generally. Like, and sure. I think different platforms have different purposes. Mm-hmm. Um, like I just did, I just wrote a newsletter for next Tuesday on dating apps and the dominance of dating apps. Like I don't, dating apps are social media. People don't usually think of them that way, but they are. Mm-hmm. They're like through and through dating apps are social media. Um, that are just predicated on connecting people romantically rather than platonically or like uh, professionally or whatever else. And so like, um, and I don't think dating apps are bad. Like I, I, the point of the piece that I wrote is really just how dominant they are and how a lot of the friends I've talked to begrudgingly use them mm-hmm. and, and with varied levels of success. And so like, I think, um, I think every social media platform kind of has a different promise or a different uh, goal. And so it varies, but I think mm-hmm. using social media platforms, whether it's YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, as a means of entertainment is totally within bounds. Like, I think that's totally fine. I think in in appropriate measure, in the same way that we don't, you know, my parents didn't want me sitting in front of my PlayStation mm-hmm. or the television for six hours on end. Like, we probably, you know, I don't think it's wrong to use social media to be entertained. I think that's mm-hmm. totally appropriate. Uh, I do think that we should be... uh be interested in how long we're doing that. I think screen time is an important thing to track and particularly like what, what apps we're giving our screen time to more than just using a screen. Cause I think there are not all screen time is created equally, I guess is how I yeah. say it. Um, yeah. And so I think using the platforms to be entertained is totally cool. I think using the platforms to connect with people across the world is really helpful. Like there are friends who I consider friends that 80% of our relationship is maintained by some form of social media. And I only see them a few times a year for a little bit of, for a few days. And the rest of our relationship is mediated by varied social media. I think that's good. I think that's, that's a, a common grace of social media platforms. I think, um, so I think there is a lot of good there and I think that they can be great modes of entertainment and modes of keeping connection with people. I think it's when we let them overextend beyond those uses that we, um, that we start to serve them rather than them serving us. Mm. Going back to how did social media or how did social internet evolve? Was it just, um, how do I say it? Was it always going to happen? What, like whoever did it, someone would have done it. If it hadn't have been Mark Zuckerberg or the guy that did MySpace. <laughs> Was it Tom? Was Tom the creator of MySpace? Tom. Um, oh, Tom. And, and what do you, so what would you say was kind of the predicating factor, like the biggest shift that happened between the 1980s to now that was changed everything? What a great question. Um, this is funny. Yeah. MySpace Tom is the one who did all this right, by the way. Everybody loves to like, mm-hmm. some people like to dog MySpace Tom, like, oh man, does, wouldn't MySpace Tom like to be Mark Zuckerberg? Uh, no, he's like, 
a wildlife photographer living in Hawaii. He got out at the right oh. time before everybody started talking about how social media was dismantling society, right? Like he right. He, he made his few hundred million dollars and was like, I'm out. Um, so yeah, MySpace time is always a fun, a fun little uh, example. But so how did mm. this stuff evolve? It, um, the internet's always been social. And let me say you talked about social internet, social media. I want to clarify this. And I used social internet more than social media throughout the book intentionally. For this reason, Postman talked about the difference between a technology and a medium. A technology is like, we all know what a technology is. It's the ones and zeros, the code, the stuff that mm-hmm. undergird, like the architecture of the internet. Mm. Um, it, it would be the engine of your car. That's the technology. The media or a medium is the way you use a technology to create culture. So the television is the technology. The television program, the news show, the reality show, the sports thing, those are all media that uses the technology of the television to create culture. Hmm. Social internet and social media are different things. Now, I do use them interchangeably within the book to help the reader because social internet is a very rare term. Social media, much more common. If I say social media, a few apps pop into your head and my head that that litter our phone screens. But social internet, using the term social internet, what I what I'm interested in is when we often conversations we have about social media are like, oh, like funny cat videos. And you probably shouldn't be looking at that kind of thing on Instagram or like be careful of how much time you spend on TikTok or like we think of Mm -hmm. individual pieces of media we consume. Mm -hmm. And I really want us to think as we think about our relationship with social media, I want us to be thinking more as much about the technologies, the algorithms, the math that serves us up that media. Like how, how does the actual technology shape us beyond just the goofy cat videos or Mm -hmm. the salacious Instagram posts or whatever else. Mm -hmm. Um, So anyway, I want to broaden our understanding and that's why I use that terminology. The reason it's social. Yeah. It was always going to be social. So to your question, like it was always going to be social because it really has been from the beginning. I mean, Email really existed before our modern social internet, mm-hmm. and email is inherently social. I mean, it was the internet was created to connect researchers to be able to share information around the Cold War so that, like, if Russia was going to nuke us, they could share information super quickly. Um, that's that's how the that's fascinating, yeah, that's how that's how the first computer networks were. Mm. were connected was so that government agencies and, and research institutions could be sharing data really fast uh, for the time, anyway. And so then once you got into like the 90s, the the walled gardens cropped up. Walled gardens were these like AOL was a walled garden. It was like you weren't going – you weren't opening up a web browser and typing in www.whatever. That came in the late 90s. It was yeah. in the mid-90s where we got the walled gardens where you'd open up CompuServe or you'd open up Prodigy or you'd open up AOL. And it was like you had to type in a keyword to get to a certain spot. Like you weren't just browsing on the web wherever you wanted. There were like certain places you could go. You could go to AOL's chat rooms. You couldn't hop Mm. onto some other, if you were using AOL, you could only use AOL's chat rooms. You couldn't hop into some other places chats. Um, And so those were the walled gardens. And and the reason social blew up is because um, frankly, I think we were just destined to use the internet to connect with other people. Um, Mm. Like it's just human nature. Um, And, and I think, AOL mailing. I mean, when AOL was at its peak, it was the 
uh, it was producing more compact discs than any music industry in the world, right? So like AOL had more compact discs for its trial, for its free 14-day trials or 30-day trials than any music producer at the height of CDs. Um, and so AOL got everybody online, not, I mean, America, but mm-hmm. they got America online truly. And at the center of AOL's experience was its chat and, and social experiences. And really AOL primed us all. There's a great book called The Attention Merchants by Tim Wu. Um, it was written a number of years ago, but it's still very relevant. And that's where a lot of my research for the early stages of the internet came from. And he talks a lot about how AOL was integral to what we would call like the modern social internet, because it just laid so much of the groundwork for (laughs) our desire to use the internet to connect to other people. Some of the other walled gardens like CompuServe or Prodigy were focused on like online shopping, which at the time it it wasn't successful because people were afraid to put their credit cards into the internet Mm -hmm. and, and things like that. Or it was more geared toward like super smart computer nerds. AOL was like super easy to use and focused on connecting with other people. And that really kind of ushered in what, what came afterward. And, and yeah, we have what we have. So. Hmm. Fascinating. Did you do any research on the way that our social media habits affect our brains, like dopamine levels or other different types of hormones or mental health or anything like that? Yeah. Yeah. I did some research. And every time I talk about this kind of subject, I want to be careful to say that I'm not a psychologist uh, mm-hmm. because I, I just tried to learn from as many of them as I could as I was writing this stuff. Um, yeah, I did plenty of research on this. Uh, there's so much data and science and to show that social media is designed to be addictive. Mm-hmm. And the founders and creators of the modern platforms we use, like Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook and Evan Spiegel of Instagram, um, have said as much. Like they, they've they have mm-hmm. uh, explicitly said that these programs were designed to get us addicted. Um, like it's not a secret, really. Now they're they're not going to say it these days, but they said it early on, and and that stuff has been maintained by the grace of God. And we, we know that that's how these things were designed. Sean, if anyone's listening has ever seen the social network, the movie about Facebook from like, Oh, or 2013 or so. Had Justin Timberlake uh, in it. So I was just going to say Justin Timberlake. Um, uh, I love Justin Timberlake. I was going to make a joke, but I'm not, uh, he's awesome. Um, I love he, uh, he is, his character is Sean, uh, Sean Parker. Like he plays mm-hmm. Sean Parker, the first president of Facebook. Well, the real life Sean Parker, is is on record uh, saying this in an interview in 2017. He said the thought process that went into building these applications. So just imagine Justin Timberlake saying this, all right? Um, the thought process that went into building these applications, Facebook being the first of them, was all about how do we consume as much of your time and conscious attention as possible? So this is like he was on the ground floor of Facebook and he's saying this. And that means that we need to sort of give you a little dopamine hit every once in a while because Mm -hmm. someone liked or commented on a photo or a post or whatever. And that's going to get you to contribute more content. And that's going to get you more likes and comments. And it's a social validation feedback loop. Exactly the kind of thing that a hacker like myself would come up with because you are exploiting a vulnerability in human psychology. The inventors or creators, me, Mark Zuckerberg, Kevin Seistrom of Instagram, it's all of these people understood this consciously and we did it anyway. So Mm. um, 
that guy, Sean Parker or, or Justin Timberlake also created Napster. The mm-hmm. ironically, Justin Timberlake played him because he created the platform that robbed musicians of, of money. But he, he said that the, the whole point of this was to hook you to keep you coming back. And that's how these platforms make money because they're free. The real cost of social media is that we end up serving them and, and, and giving them our content and our lives as a means of using them to express ourselves. So yeah, there's, there's so much research out there by, by actual great psychologists about um, just the behavioral psychology. Like it, it, honestly, one of the saddest things about social media is that some of the most brilliant minds in behavioral psychology have kind of been focused on harvesting it for ad revenue, you know, mm. like that, like in this way. Um, and it's, yeah, so it's a big deal and it, and it's very much there and, and people should be aware of it. What do you think about the metaverse? <laughs> um, what do I think about the metaverse? When you say metaverse, what do you mean? Mm. <laughs> okay. Let me, let me just clarify this by saying, I am an extremely late adopter to any technology. So here's what I know about metaverse that it is. Well, I think I know two things. Facebook has renamed their company metaverse and they're taking a, a focus on uh, like creating a virtual life. And I think that that's paralleled with what I have seen kind of like this next level dystopian, like the, the 2020 us or the 2022 us, the 1984 for us, I think is kind of more of this, like everyone's going to live their life through glasses. And that terrifies me. Sure. Yeah. So, um, yeah, Facebook renamed their company meta to focus on the metaverse and they're, they're betting, they're betting the future of the company on, on the metaverse. The metaverse is coined. um, The term was first created by Neil Stevenson, a novelist in his book, snow crash, which I'm actually in the middle of reading right now. It's a pretty good novel, very like near future dystopian. Like what's it like to live in a, in a like mediated, like physical and virtual state. Like people live in like, if anyone's seen ready player one or Mm -hmm. the movie or read the book, Neil Stevenson's Snow Crash was kind of like the precursor to that and less focused on video games. Ready Player One's much more about video games and and Neil Stevenson's is more just broad. Like people live in like the like storage centers where you like, you know, people have like the U-Haul storage center and there's like a bunch of cubes of storage sheds. Like people live in those things, like in this near future in this book. Um, Mm -hmm. And so he coined the term metaverse in that book. I think it was written in like the 80s. I could be confused. It might be 90s. and so he created the term and the, the actual definition of a metaverse. Well, a metaverse requires it to not be owned by a company. Um, so the point of a metaverse and, and Web3, which Web3 is like the future of the Internet. So Web1 is the pre-social Internet where like it was called the read era where like we would just be consuming content from the Internet. We're not we're not putting anything on the Internet. That was like kind of AOL, but even like pre-AOL. AOL and then the first social media platforms like Friendster and MySpace ushered in Web 2.0, which is where we live right now. That's mm-hmm. the read-write era of the internet where you can both consume content from the internet and create content for the internet. Um, that's Web 2.0. It's been since about the late 90s, 99, 2000, and we're still in it today. But we're starting to see Web 3. Uh, and Web 3 is read 
write, and own. So where today, like three or four companies run the internet, right? Google, mm-hmm. Facebook, Amazon. Those mm-hmm. three companies basically run the internet in some form or fashion. Microsoft also to some extent, but really mostly those three companies dominate mm-hmm. everything. And they generate most of the revenue and, and profit from all of our activity. Um, they, they, they get all the money. There's a future in Web3 where there's a social media platform like Facebook where I don't think it will be Facebook, but something like Facebook where you go on and you post something just like you do today. But instead of it being totally free, well, it may be free, but where they're harvesting your data and you don't get anything in return other than you just express yourself. Sure. There's, there's very much a future. In, in fact, it's not really fair for me to say future because some of these already exist. They're just not used super widely where for every like you get, you get a quarter. Right. And every comment, every comment you get, you get, uh, you know, 45 cents. And then every, every share you get 75 cents and you actually get paid for your content Mm -hmm. and you're, you're a stakeholder, which means the people who have created these platforms are making less money. They're still making money, but they're making less money. And you actually have an ownership stake in, and that's where like you would be paid in a cryptocurrency, which is what all this crypto stuff is about. Um, and you would be paid and then you could translate that to dollars or whatever, whatever your currency is in your country. So the metaverse is like one part of Web3, what I just described. Mm-hmm. And it's where properly defined the metaverse is not owned by a company because the whole point is to not let a big company like Google or Facebook run everything. So the perfect metaverse is like you go on to some website, imagine like an eBay of the future. And you buy, uh, you really like Jordan shoes, but you don't want to buy them for your real life feet. You want to go buy Jordan <laughs> shoes that you can put on on a digital avatar. Because here's the thing. I think this is very real. And I don't think it's in three years. I think it's probably more in like 15 or 20 years. But I mean, today, like I I had three meetings on Zoom today, right? And that's mm-hmm. just like FaceTime, right? Or like a webcam experience. I think it's very possible and likely that in 10 to 15 years, every employee who works from home or works wherever will be issued a like VR headset in addition to their laptop. And they'll participate in meetings in some form of a metaverse, but I don't think it's a metaverse purely defined. I just think it's more of like a virtual conference room rather than a Zoom FaceTime experience. Does that make sense? So like we're already halfway there in a lot of ways um, because we're already meeting virtually so much today. Uh, The the whole coronavirus thing and and remote work really sped up this conversation. Mm -hmm. But to get to the metaverse kind of as you were thinking, um, I don't think Facebook will run the metaverse as much as they want to. A, because the whole point of a metaverse is to not have it be owned by a singular company. So like any of these companies, first of all, the metaverse has just kind of become a like marketing tool for these companies to make their investors think they're thinking about the future. Like it's just kind of become a buzzword that like, like it's not, none of them really, they're just mean that they're creating a virtual reality experience that they hope will make them more money and allow them to gather more data from users. Um, A true metaverse means like you buy those virtual air Jordans for your online avatar and you can wear them in the Microsoft version of the metaverse that you're using to go to your work meetings. Like, I think genuinely, I know this is sad, Kimberly, but roll with me. I think this is possible where 
someone like me, a 30 year old goes to work in the Microsoft metaverse every day where like I I'm going to meetings that are like virtual avatars or whatever. And then when I log off, I go spend time with my family. But then when I want to play a video game or watch a movie, I go put the same headset back on. But instead of logging into the Microsoft metaverse to go to work meetings, I log into uh, some like the Xbox metaverse to play video games with my friends Um, in the same way that somebody may work today and be on Zoom meetings all day. And then when they're done, have dinner with their family or whatever, they've got an hour of free time at night. They hop on Fortnite with their friends and they buy digital goods on there, like skins for their characters or clothing items for their characters. But in the future, what this looks like is those those items you buy in one metaverse for your virtual persona in, in your gaming metaverse, you buy some cool shoes for your gaming character, you t- you can equip those to, to your persona in your work environment. It, it like translates across platforms. Um, I know this sounds very weird, but I do think I do think it's here's what I would say. I'm not exactly excited about it, especially if Facebook runs it, because Facebook has shown to be predatory on their users throughout mm. their history. Mm. Um, like I, we didn't get into this a whole lot in our conversation, but like I, I don't have a problem with all of these companies, but Facebook has repeatedly taken advantage of user trust to harvest data in some mm. pretty predatory ways, lied about it, and then not really apologize when they get caught. Um, we've, yeah. if you keep, if anyone listening keeps up on Facebook stuff, like the Facebook papers from the fall of 2021, uh, came out and, and showed just how egregious their mm-hmm. privacy issues are and all of that. So we should, you should never trust what Facebook says about anything. Like they're the least trustworthy company out of all of these in my view. Um, and I, and I'm hoping that sure. we don't adopt the Facebook's version of the future, <laughs> but there will be some version of this. And I think it's best for us to not wring our hands and say, this is so terrible because from a Christian perspective, the church kind of did that with social media and now we're decades behind in a lot of ways. And so I think it's really helpful for us to look at the metaverse or whatever this future looks like and say, well, it's not all great and there could be a lot of problems, but how can we learn to be faithful in this space and minister to people in this space, whatever that looks like and whatever form that takes um, rather than just say, oh, it's so bad, it's so terrible, and just ignore it. Because I think we're going to end up missing out on real opportunities to serve people with with the good news and, and serve people just in general if we just write it off. So I would encourage people not to be alarmed or overly optimistic, but to kind of keep tabs and learn and not let ourselves be taken off guard if this is a real big thing in a decade or two. Mm. So here's what here's what scares me about this whole metaverse thing. So much of healthy relationships involves face-to-face, like reading a person's emotions, touch, like the human touch, and that can never be replicated in a VR headset or a Zoom meeting, right? Like that's part of what is also the struggle of a lot of people right now feeling lonely, isolated. You can join 18 Zoom meetings in a day, but if there's no one to hug you at the end of it, that's still lonely. And so I hear what you're saying. I'm going to be a late adopter. (laughs) I already, I always am anyway. But I think my fear is what stops people from just becoming so addicted 
and living their life through this thing. But then also the other thing I wanted to ask you about Web 3.0 is, did I understand it right, not from you, but from something else I read, that um, people would also pay. So like if I had a page, then people would pay to be able to follow me. Totally. How does that not make everything worse? Like we're already struggling with self-esteem and all of that. And now like... Would people pay to follow me? I don't even want to have to th- that. I don't even want to have to think of that question. Yeah, yeah, uh, that that's definitely part of it. In fact, it's already on some platforms right now. You can you can yeah. pay to follow somebody on tw- to have greater access to somebody on Twitter. It's called a super follow. Mm. You can pay five bucks a month or whatever they set their rate at, and then you can like have access to slide into their DMs or or whatever. Like you can have a mm. greater level of access. So that's already kind of here, and it will definitely come. And yes, it exacerbates the problem. I think. I don't think distributing the wealth among everybody solves the problems with social media, frankly. I, I think it'd be good for us to all maybe if we have a post that does really well, it'd be great to make 20 bucks from it. But I don't think that solves our deeper problems. Sure. Um, and I agree with you uh, on the on the intimacy and the embodied presence part. I, mm-hmm. I think it's a huge problem with the future. Uh, I do think I, I do think that in a lot of conversations I've had about this, people assume we're going to go from zero to 100 where mm-hmm. – None of us are really using VR or the metaverse right now outside of people who occasionally play some games in there or whatever. A very small portion of people who are actually using it. Yeah. Um, like reg- like regularly. And I-, I think it's a little bit of a jump to say we're gonna go from not and I'm like I'm an early adopter in a lot of ways of a lot of things. And uh like I don't even have a headset yet or whatever. And I I'm not gonna go from like never using it to always wanting to live in it. I do think that could happen quite quickly, given how we've so quickly adopted other technologies. Mm. Um, but I, I think there's more of a situation where like somebody will be, instead of looking at a camera at Zoom meetings all day, they'll be on a headset with Zoom meetings all day. Mm-hmm. They may not want to spend any time in it afterward, but but they are using it regularly for that. Um, mm. Let me say this. Uh, as you were saying, you know, you're, we need human embodiment and touch and interaction. I agree with you, obviously 100%. My fear, my, my biggest fear is that we start to lose our taste for that. Mm. Um, one of the biggest problems I have with social media or biggest problems I see not with social, but more with like our relationship with social media. One of my biggest concerns, I think part of the reason we find social media so appealing and, You'll appreciate this given what you do and the nature of your podcast. And I, I think hopefully folks listening will appreciate, will understand this. Um, what social media offers us, whether it does or not is another question, but what it offers us is a feeling of being loved and appreciated mm. without the fear of vulnerability and intimacy. Mm. So social media offers us unlimited ability to feel patted on the back, to feel encouraged. Perhaps we even, you know, we, we get DMS from people that, uh, that if we're single might be flattering, but if we're married might be like, Whoa, 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 I'm married. You know, like Mm. we, we have the ability to feel others affection Mm. quite easily on the internet without ever having to be truly known by them. And, it, for a lot of reasons, I think part of the reason social media is so addicting beyond the brain psychology and, and dopamine dopamine hacking stuff we talked about. I think part of the reason social media is so appealing to folks is it offers the ability to experience 
affection without the fear and vulnerability of true intimacy. Mm. Because with, with, with true intimacy comes vulnerability. Hmm. Um, and I think a lot of folks fear true. We, we want to be loved, but we're afraid to be known. Keller talks about this a bit in meaning of marriage that, that, uh, in marriage, sometimes we're, we're, um, we're, we want to be loved, but we're afraid to truly show ourselves and, and truly be known. And I think the internet, the social internet and our various social media platforms just offer such an easy form of feeling like we're loved without feeling like we ever have to be truly known. So my fear, Kimberly, is that if this progresses, because we're already experiencing that, that sort of like disembodiment and wanting relationship without intimacy and without touch, we're already headed down that road in some really troubling ways. And what it will be interesting to see when this inevitably comes, because we can't stop it, like it's going to happen. Mm. And perhaps in our lifetimes, maybe not, maybe things slow down, but it looks like it's going to happen within the next 20 years. If that happens, what will be interesting to see is do we lean into this and and do people start to forsake any interest in wanting true intimacy because it's just so hard and so messy and so vulnerable and scary? Mm-hmm. Or that would be a worst case scenario. Or do we get to this VR metaverse screen mediated future and we realize how terrible it is collectively? Uh, some of us, I hope, would still be holdouts even if a lot of other people adopted it. But if what if collectively we realize, oh, man, this promised future of screen mediated living that everybody talked about being awesome. It is not it. Oh, it's terrible. Then we we recoil and maybe maybe we we reclaim the importance and vitality of true embodied intimacy. That would be a glorious, wonderful uh, revelation and, and experience. Absolutely. But I think. It's just going to be interesting to see what happens when that inevitably comes. Which way will we swing? And I don't know. Mm. It's interesting because as much flack as Facebook has gotten, I mean, for the past several several years, but even just this past year, people still don't get off of it. There are some, right? Yeah. Like there's some that do and all of that. But sure. overall, we still use it. With all of its known issues, <laughs> with all of yep. its predatory behaviors and everything. And so that's what I think of when I think of like, would we actually get to a point at some point in some time with some kind of virtual tech that we say, no, like we're really done. Can we overcome the addiction collectively? And, and it's, you know, I, I hesitate to ever say like, we're all addicted to social media because it's sweeping. And again, I'm not a psychologist. I can't diagnose this, but the best way the best way to know if you're addicted to something, I think, just like practically speaking, is if you keep using it and keep doing it despite hating it. Mm. I mean, it's exactly what you just described. Mm-hmm. Um, like if we find ourselves, I keep going back to this. I keep doing it and I hate it. I hate what it does to me. I hate the way it makes me feel. Yeah. I hate who I am when I'm on it. Yeah. Um, I think that's as sure a sign as any that maybe we have a bit of an unhealthy relation that we've come to serve these platforms more than they serve us. Mm-hmm. So what is the good news, Chris? What can we do here for ourselves now in what in in the space that we're in? I don't even know how to finish the sentence. 
Yeah. What do we do? What do we do? That's the question. What do we do? Yeah. Uh, You know, I think I'm going to share another concern I have on the way to saying what what I think we do. I, I think another kind of deep, like undercurrent concern that I have is that online life has become primary and offline life has become secondary. Mm. Um, it, it used to be that what happened on the internet flowed downstream from what happened off of the internet. Like the internet reflected um, what happened in the real, in the real world, quote unquote, right. real world, as if the internet wasn't real. Um, and I think what we, what we need to realize is that, um, an unfortunate shift has happened that we have started to look at the online life as primary and the offline life as mm. secondary. We've started to see our offline lives as a means of harvesting content for who we want to present ourselves to be online. Bo Burnham is a um, famous comedian uh, and entertainer and director um, he has a special on Netflix called Inside that came out uh, in twenty late 2020 or, or mid-2021, I want to say. Um, and it's very – quite vulgar, I need to say, up front. And so I can't like explicitly recommend it because it's – there are definitely things in there that are objectionable. However, it is incredibly insightful to where we're at with a lot of this stuff. Um, and – and he actually directed a movie called Eighth Grade a number of years ago, which depicts the eighth grade experience hmm. very accurately. Um, and he, when he was giving an interview around what it's like to be a modern eighth grader, he, re- he did this movie. All the eighth graders in the movie are actually eighth graders. Um, and what's funny is the movie's rated R, but it depicts the eighth grade experience. And, and it's, it's a rated R movie, but it's like, yeah, the eighth grade experience is pretty rated R these days. <laughs> and so it's kind of funny that um, an eighth grader yeah. couldn't, couldn't actually go see a movie about their own experience. But anyway, um, he says this, and I think it's pertinent to where we go from here. He says, what is the feeling of walking through your life and not just living your life, not just living your life, which is already terrible and impossible, but also taking inventory and being a viewer of your own life, like living an experience at the same time, hovering behind yourself and watching yourself live that experience, being nostalgic for moments that haven't happened yet, planning your future to look back on it. These are all really weird, dissociative things that I think are new because of the specific structure of social media and how it dissociates ourselves from ourselves. And I think it's a really kind of pertinent point that um, he he says later, he actually says this in Inside, that comedy special I I talked about. He says the non-digital world the non-digital world, so the offline world, is merely a theatrical space in which one stages and records content for the much more real, much more vital digital space. And you just think it like people go on vacations because it creates great Instagram content or they design their wedding specifically with the hashtag in mind or you know things like that. Um, and so where do we go from here? I think we reverse that trend. That's where I think we go from here. Mm-hmm. I don't think logging off and deleting your accounts fixes the problem. Now that may help you with your addiction. Like if you're finding you're enslaved that that mm-hmm. can help that mm-hmm. I don't like you're still going to hear about what happened on Facebook or what happened on Twitter or whatever else, because your friends are going to talk about it. The news will talk about it or whatever. You can't escape it. Mm-hmm. It's the water in which we swim. We can only try to swim 
as wisely as we can, I suppose you could say, and put our gas masks on if the water seems a bit toxic sometimes. Um, so I think what we do is we root ourselves in the in the real and the offline. And that looks like going for walks and maybe not taking your phone or if for safety you want to take your phone, you just don't take headphones and you, and you keep your phone in your pocket. I think it looks like studying history and, and trying to learn what, what was life like before I had my nose in my phone all the time. I think it looks like having real friendships that you meet with people real life in person in the same way you, know, you describe the importance of an embodied presence. Mm-hmm. I think it looks like having accountability with friendships who people who can ask you how your, how your faith life is going and how, uh, how your relationship with your spouse is going, how your relationship with your phone is going. I think it's it's about like letting people into your life and not fearing intimacy and the vulnerability that comes with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so I think it's I think it's a handful of things. Really, what it comes down to, in my view, is um, is letting who you are on the internet and what you do on the internet take a back seat to what you do offline. Mm-hmm. And that might sound simple, and it might sound ridiculous that anybody would let their online lives govern who they are offline. But I think enough of us probably realize how easily that can happen. And maybe we, we realize how it's happened in some ways in our own life. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I think we, we just try to reclaim our, our offline lives and make them primary rather than our, our online lives primary. I love it. Chris Martin, his book is terms of service, the real cost of social media. Fantastic conversation. Oh my goodness. I loved every minute could ask you 1800 more questions. <laughs> I loved it. I love being with you. It's uh it's a really good conversation. I know if you're listening, like look, it's not like a fun butterflies and rainbows conversation. I understand. I, you know, if you want to be encouraged, call me up, hit me up on Twitter. I give you an encouraging word, but I think it's important for us to just be like be honest about this stuff. And yeah. be, I think a lot of us are pretty well acquainted with how social media can be fun. Like yeah. I think we get that. Like we've all had some fun there. I look, TikTok is my favorite platform right now, and I'm kind of ashamed of it, but there are so many talented people that are like hilarious and very good at singing or whatever. Uh, but but I think we would all be better off if we started to take kind of a more sobering look. So I hope it's not been too discouraging for any of you guys, but but yeah, that's that's what I hope to do here. That's good. Now, where can people find you, find the book? I know it's on Amazon. Is that where you prefer sure. people buy it? Yeah, I don't really care where folks buy. I want people to buy wherever they like to buy books. Honestly, buy wherever you can get the best price. Like, I don't care. I'm not, I'm not trying to buy a boat or anything like that. Um, I just want anybody to, I just, I just want anybody to be helped by the book that can, that can, uh, be helped by it. Um, so yeah, find it. It's on Amazon. I think anywhere you want to buy a book, you should be able to find it. Barnes and Noble, um, all those different sites, christianbook.com. I think as I saw, they had like the best deal the other day, so you can find one there. Um, and on social media, um, Twitter is the primary place I engage with folks that I don't know personally. So I tend to reserve Facebook and Instagram for folks I actually know in real life. Um, go figure. But then uh, Twitter is kind of my outpost, my perch to the wider world. So I'm on Twitter at Chris Martin 17 uh, and you can find me there. I love chatting about this stuff with folks and, and DMing about it or emailing or whatever. So don't, don't hesitate to reach out and happy to talk about whatever. Awesome. Thank you so much for being with us today. Of course. Thanks for having me.
Oh, you guys, this conversation was so good. I loved talking to Chris. I could have asked him hundreds of more questions, but the things that we talked about were so valuable. I would love to know what your takeaways from this podcast were. And actually, I just want to provide a couple of seconds of silence for you to process many of the things that you just heard and think about your own key takeaways. I have a lot of conflicting feelings about social media, about where things are headed in terms of Web 3.0, in terms of this whole metaverse concept. My biggest fear is that we lose relationships. I already know from a psychological, physiological, biological perspective that we are wired for affection. The worst thing we can do is find this affection, this pseudo affection in all the wrong places. A like on Instagram or TikTok or wherever is never going to replace the feeling of someone you love's arms around you. It's never going to replace the the need that we have to be in community with others, real community, looking other people in the eye taking the time to listen to them, them to listen to us, understanding how to have face-to-face communication. All of these things are fundamental to who we are created to be as human beings. One of the research studies that Chris talked about in our conversation was that psychological study done several decades ago. I mean, it was either 1940s, 1950s, where they took these monkeys. And what they found was when they put these monkeys, I believe it was John Bowlby, uh, psychologist John Bowlby who did this, but they would take these monkeys and half of them, they would give to a, a, a wired mother that just had a bottle. So the monkey was able to get what it physically needed to survive. But then there was another kind of wired monkey, quote unquote, that had a terry cloth over it, but did not have food. So it did not have what the monkey, the baby monkey, physiologically and biologically needed to survive. It didn't have food. But that monkey would spend the majority of its time with the terry cloth fake mother because it felt It felt something it needed. We have these senses for a reason. We have touch for a reason. We have sight for a reason, hearing. And yes, a lot of it has to do with our environment, but a lot of it has to do with the way we are wired to be with other people in our lives, not over a computer or over a phone or over VR glasses, the way we are wired to experience human touch, human connection in our lives. And that is the reason There's an upcoming generation of people who don't know how to have these skills of looking someone else in the eye because they've been looking at their phone. I could get off on this tangent. I need to get back to where we are. What are my key takeaways? My key takeaways is for you to remember that we can never replace the importance, the yearning that we have in ourselves for real life human relationships. Nothing is ever, ever going to even meet where we are for that other than what I believe is our relationship with Jesus, which I would argue is still a real life human relationship. 
there is something that happens in our spirit when we are connected to Jesus, the Holy Spirit within us. That is a felt presence in our bodies. There is still a physical aspect of it. And so ask yourself those questions that Chris was talking about. What is social media doing for you? What is the benefit that you want to get out of it? And how can you set your relationship with it in order to get that? What can you do in order to prioritize your offline life more than you prioritize your online life? Share this with a friend, share this with a kid, share it with a sibling, maybe even with your spouse, share it with someone so that we can all get back to the way that relationships should be. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Remember to get Chris's book, Terms of Service, anywhere that you get books. Share this with a friend, leave a review. I love them so much. Thank you for sharing them. And I'll see you next week for the next episode of It Starts With Attraction.